Welcome back. It's episode 28 of The Build. Went way too long between episodes. For that, I somewhat apologize. I was on my honeymoon, so I believe I can be forgiven for that. But if not, sorry you didn't have to listen to my voice for an hour for the last two weeks. For some people, that would be like really painful. I don't know how you guys do it. Um, a lot has happened <clears throat> over the last few weeks for the Canadians, and for a lot of it, I was just completely checked out. I'll be honest. I, I think I had a valid reason for doing so. I've sort of, you know, picked up on bits here and there of, of how they were doing while I was um, away. But um, I think, it, it, generally speaking, the Canadians, even during that time and, and now, are doing a whole lot more winning than I, I thought or anybody else thought they would. Um, as of the time of this recording, the Canadians find themselves 16th in the league with a record of 7-6-1. and one. It's not a world beater by any stretch of the imagination, but in a, in a league where the top eight teams in each conference make the playoffs, and there are two conferences, and that, make, that means 16 teams make the playoffs, the Canadians are right in that conversation. I think they're at the moment one point back of a playoff spot. Obviously, that's not the goal here. Um, <clears throat> and at the beginning of the season, I thought the Canadians could get to five wins before the end of November. It's November 7th, and they have seven already. So they're certainly punching above the expectations that at least I had for them. Um, and I think I, I think a lot of other people as well. And I think the main reason for that is is the, the really great goaltending that we've seen so far, not only from Jake Allen, but from Sam Montembeau as well, um, where you know it especially shows itself on nights where the Canadians just don't have it. Um, and, you know, Allen and Montembeau kind of keep them in games. Um, and then there are other nights where, you know, like like Vancouver on, on Wednesday night where the Canadians just played a really bad opponent. And I don't even think they played all that particularly well on Wednesday night. But they still played the Canucks and beat them. And the Detroit game on Tuesday, that could be the first half of that where Allen just kind of stood on his head um, just like he did the last time Montreal was in Detroit. Uh, and the Canadians ended up winning this time around um, in a game that ultimately went to a shootout. He made two of three stops in the shootout. Um, they got goals from Suzuki and Caulfield in that shootout and ended up being the Red Wings. Like Those are where they're, they're finding their points right now. And I think a lot of what we're hearing, or at least what I'm hearing and seeing from, from fans, is a lot of hand-wringing about uh, they're ruining the tank, they're, they're not going to finish very low in the standings like that that you know they need to stop doing this i saw some people saying like if the canadians you know play so well because you know it, or i should say if allen continues to play this well it's a failure for uh i almost said jack hughes that's not right kent hughes I, which i completely disagree with because i mean you're acting like we he can't trade jake allen at some point which i think is still very much within their plans at some point, not immediately, but um, I'm firmly in the camp that the Canadians winning some games like this isn't the end of the world. And I say that fully knowing, or at least believing, that things are going to come back down to earth for this team. The goaltending is going to regress. Um, and, you know, there, this is a this is a very tricky thing to say without it seeming like you are expecting or rooting for an injury, but Jake Allen has not stayed healthy in his time in Montreal, right? Like, that's just, 
the idea of him starting 50 plus games is just not a reality that we've seen over the last few years with Jake Allen. Um, you know, I just, I wouldn't count on him playing 50 games and being lights out in every single one of them. Um, I, I think that freaking motorcycle, I don't know if you can hear that worst day of my life. Um, I, I just, I don't think that there's any reason to be worried about that at this point. Um, I think that and we'll, we'll get to it later. Or I guess we can get to it right now because, you know, one of the things that I think has come about over the last few weeks since we last spoke was that the Canadians have developed a big line. I don't know that they have a number one line yet because, you know, there are some some people who don't truly believe that Nick Suzuki is a first line center, whatever. They do have a big line, which is the first time since, you know, uh, Deno, Gallagher, Tatar that they have one. And that is um, in Marty St. Louis finding that complimentary piece for Nick Suzuki and Cole Caulfield and that being Kirby Doc. Um, I, you know, I think when, when everybody on this, on this, everyone around this team was looking for the, the solution to who is going to play best with Suzuki and Caulfield, we were looking at wingers. We were looking, you know, the, the constant thought was, um, you know, Josh Allen's, uh, Josh Allen. Ooh, Josh Anderson's just going to end up there. Um, you know, Rem Pitlick played a lot there last year. And we, for reasons that we can get into later in this episode, that's not going to be a fit moving forward. It was hardly a fit when it happened. Um, but they find it in a center in Kirby Dock. And in six games together, their, their lines are impressive. Um, Suzuki in those six games has six goals, four assists for 10 points. Caulfield three and five for eight, and Doc three and six for nine. So obviously those that's just six games. The sample size remains pretty small. And the you know, the teams that they were playing against weren't world beaters, right? Like they are the the <laughs> they're the, the current Vancouver Canucks who just look abysmal. Um <clears throat> and, you know, even if these were good teams that they were playing against, that sample size is still really small. But even in that small sample size, outside of the scoring that they've done, which is potentially unsustainable, we won't know that until we see them play more. Um, but as Sebastian High points out, Doc's inclusion on that line has turned Caulfield and Suzuki into positive possession players at 5-on-5. Five five. With, you know, he pulled the... the I know, oh man, that's going way back. Was it Corsica? They used to call them with or without you charts. Um, the Natural Statric has a very similar um, tool. And without Kirby Doc, Caulfield and Suzuki were at a 33 point, almost a 34 expected goals for percentage. So that means they were giving up like 60, what is it, 66% of the expected goals while they were on the ice without Kirby Doc, now that they have him, they're at 50.32%. So they've they've really improved. Again, it's a small sample size, but that's a very important um, metric as far as determining, uh, you know, how, a line's potential success, not only in the offensive zone, but but how well are they keeping the, the their opponents out of the high danger scoring areas. Um I think he added that at five on five, that line has scored 
eight goals off of uh what was it off of like just over two expected goals so you would expect that that's going to that the scoring might drop off a little bit but they're i think i think they're going to they're going to stick with this no matter what for right now because it is working and i think that those are those are three pillars of this organization moving forward if you can get them all all rolling and then figure out the secondary scoring that's going to be you know a really even if it's not their first line moving forward having three guys that you can roll out there you know who have chemistry together who have played together is really important there was also some hand wringing about moving Kirby Doc to the wing because you know they acquired him to be a center if you remember going back to draft day you know everyone thought Montreal was going to take Shane Wright they don't they go with the winger and Yuri Slavkovsky and I remember my first thought was, all right, you didn't take a center. We need a center. You have to go get one. And, you know, within a few minutes, he had worked out the deal with the Islanders and the Blackhawks where he essentially traded Romanoff, uh, I think, a fourth and a second for Kirby Doc, which is just incredible value. Um, and I think there's a lot of hand-wringing right now about him not playing center. We acquired him to be a center, and I just don't think that's a legitimate problem for a few reasons. One, I don't think Montreal is in the center market right now. I think they're in we-need-good-players market. Like, you know, they have a lot of wingers, but they say no to a a, a really good young winger right now that, that another team is getting rid of. Probably not. If the, if the price was right, they'd probably go after him. And two, it's not like Doc flunked out of being a center like, like other young prospect centers we've seen in the past the the Jonathan Dwayne's the um the Alex Galchenyuk's like th- that ilk of player um he didn't flunk out he was doing fine on his own but when he's with Caulfield and Suzuki he elevates his game and he elevates Caulfield and Suzuki's game he's made them look better while he's on the ice um in the short term Montreal has center has their center depth in a really good spot um, Christian Dvorak, Sean Monahan, and Jake Evans are more than capable of holding down the four in lines two through four. Um, so there's not an urgent need now. And even in the long term, I think that what made this move real easy for you know the Canadians from an organizational standpoint is how Owen Beck made quite a statement in the preseason. And I think he could be a center on this team as early as next season. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about Owen Beck later. I can't say I've watched him play, but his start has been strong. And as Andrew Berkshire reminded me on Game Over, Philip Mayshar can play center as well if the team wants to go that route. Plus, you add in whatever center they pick in the in the early in the first round this year, because that the the front of this year's draft is very center heavy. Um, and you, after that, you've got a very capable center core in the prospect pool. So, in short, the big line is good now. The big line has the the opportunity to be good moving forward, and it's not, you know, moving Doc to to wing is not the same as when they moved Drang to wing or Galchenyuk to the wing. It's a completely different animal. Um, so that's been, even on nights where the Canadians will lose games, which they are going to do a lot this season, um, having that line to look at and, and analyze and watch them score a bunch is going to be a lot of fun. Um... But that's kind of where the good news ends for the Montreal forward group, as you could probably tell by the title of this episode. 
Um, Montreal has a logjam at forward, and it's a logjam of players who are just really all struggling right now. That logjam already has one casualty in Rem Pitlick, who was waived earlier this week, was not claimed, assigned to Laval. I think he has a $1.1 million cap hit, so I think... I don't think it's all buryable in the minors. Some of it's still on the, the main cap, but none of that salary cap stuff matters because the Canadians have a bajillion dollars on injured reserve. Um, in Montreal, Rem Pitlick had no points through seven games, averaging a little over 12 and a half minutes a night. Um, he Pitlick is not the only problem. I think he was just the easiest one to move out of that logjam because I don't think anyone was going to claim him. Um and his cap hit is the lowest, so if they want to trade a body, he's probably the one that's going to go. But he's 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 emblematic of a problem that is that is really shown up this year for the Canadians that we thought was going to be a positive for the future of this organization. It is an immediate hindrance on what the Canadians would like to do. I think um, at some point this season, this is the list of players who have been healthy scratched: Mike Hoffman. Jonathan Drouin, Evgeny Dodonov, Rem Pitlick. Uh, I believe Uri Slavkovsky has has sat a game as a healthy scratch, at least one or two. And Michael Pizzetta, who I'm not really worried about here, but you get the idea. Pizzetta's really only just started playing. I think he has two games in the suspension era Canadians because that's what we're looking at right now. Um, among those players not named Michael Pozzetta or Uri Slavkovsky, they have four goals among them. So Mike Hoffman, Jonathan Druin, Evgeny Dodonov, and Rem Pitlick have four goals among them, and Hoffman has all of them. They have eight points between all four of them, and Druin and Hoffman have all of them. Dadnoff has not found the score sheet yet, which I found astonishing. Like, I'm literally, I'm going to go check right now because I still kind of don't believe it. Um, I know that he was kind of a castaway out of... Uh, out of Vegas, but it doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense that he has, he has yet to, to do, uh, yeah, 10, 10 games, no goals, minus four, if you're into that sort of thing, uh, what, 12, he has 12 shots, like, he's just, he's really struggling, um, as are the rest of the guys on this list, the, and I said earlier that this looked at one point to be a strength for the Canadians, that having all of this depth was going to help insulate the younger guys. And then at the trade deadline, you'd be able to move them because they would have had value playing big minutes for this team. You know, that's why Dodonov's on an expiring deal. Jonathan Duane's on a, an expiring deal. Uh, Rem Petlick only has one year after this one, as does Mike Hoffman. Hoffman has been turning it on lately. But the rest of them are a legitimate problem because I don't think St. Louis has any reason to play any of them. And he has to play some of them because the team is like, they, you know, they can't they can't call up players from Laval without one player being injured or two players being moved. Um, and Hoffman's turned it on, which is, we'll talk more about that a little bit later. But, you know, the rest are they've kind of become a negative value for the Montreal Canadiens, which I I didn't think all of them were going to be like, yep, we're going to get first-round picks for every single one of these guys. But, like, what could you get for Dodonov right now? Like, I, could you get a sixth? <laughs> I just, I don't think that the value's there. It might get there later on. If you, All he has to do is get hot at the right time. Um, but the problem is, is I don't, like, St. Louis has to choose a lineup to play every night. And, like, 
you know, it's a double-edged sword. Are you playing guys because you want them to play better? Or are you playing guys because they are playing well? Like, Hoffman has been on both sides of that. I think now you kind of have to play Hoffman because he's the hot hand. But earlier, they were playing him in the, I think at least in the, the, the middle six, the second and third lines, to try to get him going. And I mean, since then, he's not, he's been taken off the first power play unit. I think he finds himself only on the second unit. And that's saying something because the Canadians run, a, right now, are running a five forward power play unit and he can't find his way onto it. They can't build up value sitting on the bench. They need to play, and they need to play well. And the 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 crux of the issue here is they haven't done either one of those things consistently this year, if at all. The 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 big line, Caulfield, Suzuki, and and Doc, are responsible for twenty one of the team's forty four goals. Nearly half of their offense is coming from those three players. Which is good if you want those three guys to succeed and the team to still lose, because that's likely what's going to happen here if the secondary scoring doesn't pick up and the goaltending regresses like we kind of all expect it to. Which again, I'm not even saying is a bad thing for this team because again, you want you want those young players to play well and you still want this team to have a nice draft pick in a very, very nice first round of, of the twenty twenty three draft. This would all be a resounding success if they, if all of this happens and they fall into a top five pick. But the Canadians would be able to recruit way more value if those veteran guys at the bottom of the lineup chipped in at all, really. Um, so I, we're going to stop there as far as talking about the forward logjam. And we'll get into the final segment here. I know this is a quick one, but this will be the bulk of the episode, honestly. Um the segment we did last time, I think, is going to be a recurring segment here, um, a, uh, back going back to the drawing board and our building blocks. So I will start with the people I am sending back to the drawing board. And the first one I have already kind of talked about a little bit, and that's Evgeny Dodonov. He is an easy target to go back to the drawing board uh, this week. I will say, before I talk a whole lot more about him as as a negative asset for the Canadians. He did look far more involved in his last game against Vancouver. I think that was his first game back, maybe his second. Um, but he drove the net with a strong move uh, and drew a penalty. But with the skill that this guy has, that can't be the highlight of the night for him. Like, he has to do more. Um, Montreal has used him pretty regularly as a penalty killer, which is something he's quietly doing quite well, despite never doing it in his NHL career. But if you're trading for Evgeny Dodonov at the deadline, I don't think you're trading for him to be a penalty killer. Or you're, tra- you're not trading for him to be a defensive... Fo- you're not trading for him for the reason that like Colorado went and got a- a- Archery Lakenen. And, you know, similarly, and someone was... On, on Habs Twitter, it was shared. It was a one of those player cards, and it was Mike Hoffman having an outstanding defensive impact on this this year's team. And while that's nice, like teams are not going to trade for Mike Hoffman because of his defensive output. Like that's just not why you acquire a player like him. It's not why you acquire a cap hit like him. It's not a reason you would trade the assets that you need to get him. He needs to score, and I think that's somewhat the same for Dodonov. Um, and, you know, it's not like Dodonov was bad last year. I think he was a 40-point player. 
Um, he just hasn't been anything like the player that we saw he that, that he was in Vegas last year. He's playing about two minutes less than he did, you know, last year for Vegas on a nightly basis. So maybe that's it. And, you know, the problem is, is that once you bring in ice time to the equation, you kind of wonder, is he playing badly because he's not getting the ice time or is he not getting the ice time because he's playing badly? Um, the point, the fact that he's been a healthy scratch leads me to believe it's the, the, the second one of those that he's not getting the ice time because he's playing badly. Um, I, I hope he can dig himself out of this brutal start, but he had the perfect chance at the suspensions to Anderson and Slavkovsky. Um, he's still got one more game from the Slavkovsky su- suspension that'll be served on Saturday night against Pittsburgh. He just hasn't done much to take advantage of those chances. Um, and speaking of Slavkovsky and Anderson, I have them both going back to the drawing board. Um, I cannot personally remember the last time two Canadians were suspended for similar hits in back-to-back games, but that's what we saw with Anderson boarding Alex Petrangelo on Saturday night, followed by Slavkovsky boarding Matt Luff um, against Detroit on Tuesday. Both bad hits, both suspension-worthy hits. Anderson's, I thought, was far more premeditated than Slavkovsky's. He, Anderson, like, he came from across the ice. Like, he came from the, the, the Zamboni door, which sounds like a bad sci-fi horror movie. It came from the Zamboni door. Um, he was clearly frustrated in that game. He had kind of been going through it the last few games. I have a theory that Anderson is, is a little lost right now because he's not on that line with with uh Caulfield and Suzuki and he just kind of doesn't know what he's what he's doing on a nightly basis maybe I'm way off base there but I, I just have not have not seen him as a positive player for this team when he's in the lineup uh, meanwhile Slavkovsky's was just a it was a poor reaction to what was going on around him I don't think he was there was malice there it was just he threw a hit at a spot on the ice that he should not have thrown a hit at um, both bad, glad they both got suspended. Both are lucky the suspensions weren't longer. Anderson has played a ton. He should know better, but Slavkovsky, I'm glad that he's getting this early in his career. If he has to have it at some point, because the the sooner you can get this out of his game, the better he's always going to be a big, a big player, right? He's going to, he's going to only get bigger, at least grow into the frame that he's already in. So, you know, him learning how to be responsible and learning where on the ice you can and can't throw hits, that's that's only going to suit him and the Canadians better moving forward. Terrible injury to Matt Luff. It looks like he's going to be out for a really long time. Um, but again, I, I, I think they're both very lucky those suspensions were not longer than they ended up being. Um, all right, last person I am sending back to the drawing board. Might be a little controversial, but uh, Marty St. Louis, despite everything that's going well for the Canadians, much of which has to do with decisions that St. Louis made, I'm sending the coach back to the drawing board. And on that drawing board, there will be one name, and it will be Jordan Harris. I I cannot, for the life of me, understand what St. Louis doesn't see in Jordan Harris or wants to see in Jordan Harris before he puts him in certain situations. Um, Chris Weidman was playing the power play before Edmondson came back. Somebody had it to sit. Weidman was the odd man out. I don't think he's come back to the lineup since then. Um, actually, I think he came back in once and, and 
Jonathan Kovacevic sat out. And I think, you know, both of those fine. I think Kovacevic has been very good, so keep him there. But Weidman benching him was probably a really tough thing for St. Louis to do. They love him in the room, but it was the right call. That left St. Louis without his power play quarterback, which again is just a ridiculous thing to say because Chris Weidman should not be any team's power play quarterback, if we're being honest. Um, and instead of putting another defenseman in there, he went with the five forward approach, which I don't even disagree with. I love that aggressiveness. I love, you know, the, the concept of saying, we're going to put five guys on the ice who can score against you, except with the five guys that he put out there, that's not true. Um, I believe that's true for the big three that once they step out there, Caulfield, Doc, and Suzuki, those guys can score at will. Um, I think Monahan's out there too, but Druin is the one that took the, the quarterback spot, and I think he's fine there. Like, I don't have any issues, and I think that in in the spirit of trying to, you know, pump up his value a little bit, he's fine there if he's just, even if he's just, like, touch-passing the puck over to Suzuki as he does that thing where he loops back out to the, the blue line and creates a rush chance on the power play. Um, but I, I'm curious as to why Jordan Harris has not gotten a sniff of that power play yet. He quarterbacked his college power play. Um, if you, if you've watched, if you watch him skate in the offensive zone and watch him skate across the blue line and hold the puck in on the blue line, you, you'll see the skill set that he has, and you'll see that it's kind of tailor-made for this sort of opportunity. Um, I don't want to hear, well, we're monitoring his ice time. He's already playing 20 minutes a night. He's the team's fifth most used defenseman on the penalty kill, so it's not like he's logging a ton of minutes there. He's playing the second most five-on-five minutes among Habs defensemen behind only David Savard. And the only players behind him in power play ice time are Edmondson and Evans. Harris has a total of 34 seconds on the power play. I just, it's not even, like, I don't know if I'm, like, directly criticizing Martin St. Louis. I don't I don't want it to come off that way. Although I guess that's what this segment is. So if, if, that's, if that's how it works out, so be it. But I just, I, I, in the spirit of what this team is trying to accomplish in this sort of transition year, you would think that he would get a look. You know, like, it's not like he's playing eight minutes a night either. Like, they're using Jordan Harris and Caden Gooley both. Um, but I'd really like to see what, what Harris can do on that power play. He seems tailor-made for that kind of situation. And on top of that, St. Louis doesn't seem to want to use him in a bunch of other situations, or at least he, he prefers other defensemen over him in situations where I think he would he would play well. One of those being three-on-three. Three. He's the third most used defenseman in three-on-three three situations behind Caden Gooley, which is okay, and David Savard, which is very not okay. Um, you know, I think the power play look, was looking good for a few games, and now it's back to stinking a bit. Um, maybe this will be the chance Harris needs to get in on that power play. Um, but we'll, we'll see. I mean, I, it's something I'd really, I, I don't think I'm alone in this. I think a lot of people are looking at this Canadians lineup and going, how come this guy isn't playing on that power play? Like take some of his five on five minutes away. Give him to, don't give him to Joel Edmondson because he's already playing too much when he's, since he's come back. Um, by the way, I think that that would be another player I'd send back to the drawing board, not for any fault of his own is Joel Edmondson. 
Like he he came back from injury and they said, okay, play 25 minutes a night. And it's just, it has not, he has not looked good. Um, every time he has the puck on his stick in his own zone, regardless of how much pressure is on him, it's a complete disaster most times. He, I don't know where he picked up this habit from, but all of a sudden he's like trying to go, he's trying to clear the puck or make a pass out through the middle of the ice. Which, I mean, I've never played organized hockey but even i know like that's a disaster like you don't go out up the middle of the ice like that's just not what you're supposed to be doing and so many times it's either ended up in his net or very close to it um so joel edmondson put him in the drawing board as well all right that's the last of the negative so let's get into some some of the, the the nice building blocks that we have and then we'll we'll call it a show it'll be a quick one um as i talked about earlier kirby doc he's just he is exactly what that line needs. Um, I think he's playing with a ton of confidence right now. Um, I think, you know, a few games ago, someone asked him about playing center and not or not playing center right now. And his answer was kind of like, you know, I don't make the lineup like I the coach, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but like the, the coach puts me where I need to play and blah, blah, blah. And it sounded a little bit to me like he was a little bummed he's not playing center anymore. But then I think like he's playing with the team's most talented forwards. He's in the best. He's in the best situation to succeed for himself and for the team. So I think I think that's gonna I think that should at least quell some of his you know displeasure with or potential displeasure with not playing center again. I don't even know if that's the case. I'm just inter- I'm just trying to analyze what he said. Um, and again, it's fun revisiting how Kent Hughes essentially traded Romanoff a fourth and a second for Kirby Doc, because if you've been listening to the show since it started you know that I wasn't particularly high on on Alex Romanoff and to you know they didn't trick the Blackhawks in that deal I don't think because I think the Blackhawks got a good deal but they to to get the the first round pick from Chicago or, or, or from the Islanders and give up Romanoff and a and a fourth essentially, like that's that's really really good value for Kent Hughes. I might have to update the 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 trade tier list at some point. I'm not going to yet. It's only been six games on that line, but um, there's not much else to add here except that you know you just kind of hope they keep doing what they're doing. Um, speaking of keeping doing what they're doing, and those are that that was a good sentence, idiot. Um, Mike Hoffman. I never thought that you know he would be in a positive segment on this show, but here we are. Um, he's been good. The last two games, he's been, you know, he's been the secondary scoring on this team. Um, he got two basically empty net tap-ins on identical intentional rebound shots from Gallagher, um, which, you know, I don't say, I don't, you know, say, oh, they're empty nets to try to discredit him because he was going to the net. Like that's, Mike Hoffman's not a, not a, a crash and bang player. He's not going to go to the net. He's a perimeter shooter. So when he does go to the net to find a goal, like that's pretty cool. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I hate that, that the bar is so low or it's seemingly so low, but like that, that's a good play by him. Both of them were. And then against Vancouver on Wednesday, they got a break. They went back the other way and he was in a two on one with Gallagher and he never thought about passing that puck and he just blew it by Thatcher Demko. Um, Perhaps that's a that's a reliable combo moving forward, Gallagher and Hoffman. Um, 
what a weird combo just in practice, right? Like very, very odd. Um, but Montreal's going to need all this, the secondary scoring that they can get because, um, you know, it, like I said, that, that sec, that their goaltending is going to regress. They're going to need to find more offense or lose hockey games. And, you know, I think those, those two things will trade off. They'll lose hockey games and some games they will find that secondary scoring. Um, so good for Mike Hoffman. I hope he continues it. I know he was kind of a um, point of ridicule, ridicule over the last week or so because he was on Twitter uh, liking tweets, um, you know, basically criticizing him and blocking people. And it's never a good thing when it, when, when you're name searching, right? Like that's not, you're not in a good headspace when that's happening. So I hope that, you know, this is a sign of things to come for him and, you know, I hope he fle- I hope he's he plays well enough so that Kent Hughes can fleece some team in the Western Conference to take Mike Hoffman on a playoff run. And the final building blocks, plural, of this week um, are a group of people I am not qualified in any way to talk about, and that's um, some of the prospects who are off to really really nice starts in their respective um, junior organizations. I say I'm not qualified to to talk about them. I haven't seen a ton. I've just seen the highlights. I haven't had a chance to watch um, many of their games, any of their games, I should say. Um, But I think you need to watch many of them to get some kind of understanding of how they're playing. But with that said, like, I think, you know, Twitter buzz is a thing. And, um, you know, one of the players who's generated a ton of it dating back to his um, training camp with the Canadians is Owen Beck. I, he's off to a great start with the Mississauga Steelheads in the the OHL. He's got ten goals and nine assists for nineteen points in twelve games. Um, you know he is a guy, and you know mo- most of the AHL or AHL OHL is like this. He missed they they all missed time because the OHL just didn't play games. Um, you know that's something that I think he is going to make a lot of teams think twice about because I, I think he's going to be a very talented player from everything I've read from all the people that I've, I've listened to and, and, you know, who actually know what they're talking about when it comes to prospects, they seem to really believe that this guy can be an NHLer out of the box. And then the, the really, the, he has a very safe floor. And then the only question is how high his ceiling is going to be. So 19 points in 12 games to start the season. Pretty good there. Um, another OHL player, um, for it's his first season in the OHL, but um, again drafted the same year as is Philip Mayshar, now playing with the Kitchener Rangers, also lighting things up there. Uh, five goals, four assists for nine points through six games. I think he might up end up he might end up being too good for that league, but let him fill the net. Come back to training camp next year, feeling good about himself. See if he can make the Canadians out of camp. Um, you can say that same thing for Beck, too. I think there's a very good chance he's too good for the OHL, but he's really not allowed to play in the American Hockey League right now. Um, whereas Mayshar was sent to the OHL by the Canadians. I think Mayshar could have played in the AHL, but they preferred him to be in the OHL. Um, so two really good players in the OHL for the Canadians. They 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 look to be part of the Canadians' core forwards um, once they actually make the roster. Um, and the last prospect I'll add as a building block is one that I think this fan base is really, really excited about. And every clip we see of him just makes that excitement grow. And that's Lane Hudson. Um, he's, he's, uh, in his first season with Boston college as a defenseman, he's got three goals and five assists for eight points through his team's seven first seven games. 
Um, not only is he scoring, it seems like every time he scores, it's a highlight real tally of some kind. Um, I, I said this after the draft. I still believe it as, as pie in the sky as it might be. I still think that, that there's a really good chance that Hudson and Beck are the Habs' best players coming out of last year's draft. And that's not a slight at Slepkovsky or at Mayshar, but a way of saying that last year's draft from a scouting perspective was a bit of a crapshoot. Hudson slid because of his size, and Beck slid like a lot of other OHL players because no one saw them play. They didn't play a lot. Um, so those might be areas where the, the Canadians can, um, you know, what's what's the term, the... the, the market inefficiency there um you know might be the ohl player drafted it you know early in the 2022 nhl entry draft um so that's all i've got on uh the canadians i do want to touch on one thing that's that's been going around through hockey recently um and that's of course the the bruins signing uh mitchell miller and then within 72 hours parting ways with the player um man it's just it's it it bums me out like that's that's all I can really say at this point is just how how unbelievably predictable all of that was like that an NHL team signed him that it was immediately met with criticism that within within 72 hours they were telling us about new information that they had learned about the player even though it was all known the entire time I just I feel I feel awful for um Isaiah the the the, the person the, the victim in all of this um it's really you know it's it's his mom is such a a powerful advocate for him and it just sucks that she has to be that advocate for him even now years after this has ended like the the trash on Twitter who's they're just like defending this guy they don't know. And like, you know, at the end of um the Saturday episode of Game Over, um some episode of I think it was Saturday, you know, that it was it was Laura Sab of, of Locked On Canadians who who said, like, you know, why do you identify with this guy? Like all the people who like jump into replies to defend him and all these people who like can't wait to throw their body in front of this guy like why do you identify with him were you a bully like do you think bullies are justified in what they're doing and it like I, even the word bully doesn't even sound right like we keep using that word bully like what he did was a hate crime like we're it's a hockey show and we're talking about hate crimes that's not good So, you know, in all of this, all you can really hope for is that Isaiah is living a life free of all of this. Um, you know, it's not fair that this keeps happening, that this keeps getting brought up. Isaiah now, I guess, has a son of his own. And he's still dealing with, with you know, stuff that he dealt with when he was a kid. Like, it's just, it's not okay. So... I guess that's all I really, I had I couldn't do the episode without mentioning it. It's all made me very sick to my stomach. Um and the last thing I'll say is this. And I didn't I didn't see, you know, parts of this fan base do this. You know, the oh, see classic Boston, of course they would do something like that. This fan base of all of us should know that the 
darker sides of, of hockey culture do not spare a single team. If you think that your team is immune to it, you are incorrect. This is systemic and generational rot that allows people to think they can get away with signing people like this. And it's generational rot that brought up Mitchell Miller in a system where he thought that, well, because he plays hockey well, none of this will matter. I think it's generational rot that is very slowly being chipped away. Like, you know, the Bruins who are who are there now, the players, they were all very fed up about what had happened. Because I think they very strongly believe in the culture in their locker room. And that this player did not mesh with that and they spoke out against it. You know, in the very muted hockey ways. But even what they did say was was way more than you could ever think a hockey player would say about their general manager or a move that the GM made. That There will be firings in Boston because of this. I don't know why it's taken so long, honestly. Um, people will lose their jobs over this because it's just, it was such an unforced and, and entirely predictable, mis- not even mistake, it's not a mistake. They knew what they were doing. But it was just all so predictable. And very frustrating. And, you know, if I'm going to get on this show and I'm going to talk to you guys about Mike Hoffman blocking people on Twitter and having a laugh about it or, you know, making up dumb bits to do on this show and enjoying the concept of talking about hockey, I, I can't leave these other parts of hockey aside. Like, those need to be discussed as well. I know. I've, got, I've had some responses in the past that are like, oh, you shouldn't be talking about this sort of thing, oh, whatever. It, it's my show. I'm going to talk about it. And it's a hockey show, so I'm going to talk about it. And it's just a, a reminder that no team is exempt from any of this. No team is immune to it. Every team in this league is touched in some way by that systematic generational rot that allows this stuff to keep happening. And until it is all rooted out, no team is safe, and it's not the fans of that team's fault, but you, we, you know, get loud. You need to get loud. Write letters to the owner. Write letters to advertisers. That's where that, if you're following any of the stuff that's going on, on with Twitter, on Twitter, you'll know that, like, the ad dollars are what controls everything. So, continue to, you know, just be an advocate for, you know, the the, the the people who are victimized in these situations. So uh, I think I'll just leave it there. That's all I've got. Um, before I go, I wanted to remind you, you should already be doing this, but remind you to tune into Game Over on the Steve Dangle Podcast Network. Oh, sorry. On, on Saturday night um, when the Canadians take on the Pittsburgh Penguins where you'll see Andrew Berkshire host a show um, with a dude wearing a Petri for Norris t-shirt. And in case that was unclear, that dude is me. So it should be a good time. Um, jump in. It's fun. The chat interacts. He'll read chat during the, the thing. So if you have a message you want to send to me through the chat, you can do that. It's great. Um, so yeah, follow follow all that. Follow Game Over. Subscribe on YouTube. Um, I'll be there a bunch this season. I think I've got, including this one coming up, I've got nine more games. So, um, when I go on those shows, you can, I'll, I'll tweet out links. You can follow me 
for now on Twitter at maybe it's Ian. Um, that may change because it seems like Twitter is deteriorating by the day, by the minute, by the hour. So uh, for now, I'm at maybe it's Ian. If there's another platform, I'm going to try to get that name too because I like it. But for now, it's on Twitter. Um, the song you're hearing now is Inside by Fred Mug. Check the description, link to Bandcamp, all of that noise. All right, guys, take care. I'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.